Chapter Two of the Moon Pool by Abraham Merritt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Moon Pool, Chapter Two, Dead, All Dead. He was sitting face in hands on the side of his berth as I entered. He had taken off his coat. Throck, I cried. What is it? What are you flying from, man? Where is your wife and Stanton? Dead, he replied monotonously. Dead, all dead. Then, as I recoiled from him, all dead. Edith, Stanton, Thora, dead, or worse. And Edith in the moon pool, with them, drawn by what you saw on the moon path, that has put its brand upon me and follows me. He ripped open his shirt. Look at this he said. Around his chest, above his heart, the skin was white as pearl. This whiteness was sharply defined against the healthy tint of the body. It circled him with an even cincture about two inches wide. "'Burn it!' he said, and offered me his cigarette. I drew back. He gestured, peremptorily. I pressed the glowing end of the cigarette into the ribbon of white flesh. He did not flinch nor was there odor of burning, nor, as I drew the little cylinder away, any mark upon the whiteness. "'Feel it!' he commanded again. I placed my fingers upon the band. It was cold, like frozen marble. He drew his shirt around him. Two things you have seen,' he said. "'It and its mark. Seeing, you must believe my story. Goodwin, I tell you again that my wife is dead, or worse, I do not know. The prey of what you saw. So too is Stanton, so Thora. How? Tears rolled down the seared face. Why did God let it conquer us? Why did he let it take my Edith? He cried in utter bitterness. Are there things stronger than God, do you think, Walter? I hesitated. Are there? Are there? His wild eyes searched me. I do not know just how you define God, I managed at last through my astonishment to make an answer. If you mean the will to know, working through science. He waved me aside impatiently. Science, he said. What is our science against that, or against the science of whatever devils that made it, or made the way for it to enter this world of ours? With an effort he regained control. Goodwin, he said, do you know at all of the ruins on the Carolines, the Cyclopean, megalithic cities and harbors of Ponape and Lili, of Cusay, of Rook and Hogaloo? and a score of other islets there. Particularly, do you know of the non-metal and the metalanum? Of the metalanum I have heard and seen photographs, I said. They call it, don't they, the lost Venice of the Pacific? Look at this map, said Throckmorton. That, he went on, is Christian's chart of the metalanum harbor and the non-metal. Do you see the rectangles marked non tauach Yes, I said. There, he said, 
Under those walls is the moon pool, and the seven gleaming lights that raise the dweller in the pool, and the altar and the shrine of the dweller. And there in the moon pool, with it, lie Edith and Stanton and Thora. The dweller in the moon pool? I repeated, half incredulously. The thing you saw, said Throckmorton solemnly. A solid sheet of rain swept the ports, and the southern queen began to roll on the rising swells. Throckmorton drew another deep breath of relief, and drawing aside a curtain, peered out into the night. Its blackness seemed to reassure him. At any rate, when he sat again, he was entirely calm. There are no more wonderful ruins in the world, he began, almost casually. They take in some fifty islets, and cover with their intersecting canals and lagoons about twelve square miles. Who built them? None knows. When were they built? Ages before the memory of present man, that is sure. Ten thousand, twenty thousand, a hundred thousand years ago, the last more likely. All these islets, Walter, are squared, and their shores are frowning sea-walls of gigantic basalt blocks, hewn and put in place by the hands of ancient man. Each inner waterfront is faced with a terrace of those basalt blocks, which stand out six feet above the shallow canals that meander between them. On the islets behind these walls are time-shattered fortresses, palaces, terraces, pyramids. Immense courtyards strewn with ruins, and all so old that they seem to wither the eyes of those who look on them. There has been a great subsidence. You can stand out of Metalanum Harbor for three miles and look down upon the tops of similar monolithic structures and walls twenty feet below you in the water. And all about, strung on their canals, are the bulwarked islets with their enigmatic walls peering through the dense growths of mangroves, dead, deserted for incalculable ages, shunned by those who live near. You, as a botanist, are familiar with the evidence that a vast, shadowy continent existed in the Pacific, a continent that was not rent asunder by volcanic forces, as was that legendary one of Atlantis in the Eastern Ocean. My work in Java, in Papua, and in the Ladrones had set my mind upon this Pacific lost land. Just as the Azores are believed to be the last high peaks of Atlantis, so hints came to me steadily that Ponape and Lili and their basalt bulwarked islets were the last points of the slowly sunken western land clinging still to the sunlight, and had been the last refuge and sacred places of the rulers of that race which had lost their immemorial home under the rising waters of the Pacific. I believed that under these ruins I might find the evidence that I sought. My my wife and I talked before we were married of making this our great work. After the honeymoon we prepared for the expedition. Stanton was as enthusiastic as ourselves. We sailed, as you know, last May for fulfillment of my dreams. At Ponape we selected, not without difficulty, workmen to help us, diggers. I had to make extraordinary inducements before I could get together my force. Their beliefs are gloomy, these Ponopeans. They people their swamps, their forests, their mountains and shores with malignant spirits, 
Ani they called them. And they are afraid, bitterly afraid, of the Isles of Ruins and what they think the ruins hide. I do not wonder, now. When they were told where they were to go, and how long we expected to stay, they murmured. Those who, at last, were tempted, made what I thought then merely a superstitious proviso, that they were to be allowed to go away on the three nights of the full moon. Would to God we had heeded them, and gone too! We passed into Metalanum Harbour. Off to our left, a mile away, arose a massive quadrangle. Its walls were all of forty feet high, and hundreds of feet on each side. As we drew by, our natives grew very silent. Watched it furtively, fearfully. I knew it for the ruins that are called Nantawach, the place of frowning walls. And at the silence of my men, I recalled what Christian had written of this place, of how he had come upon its ancient platforms and tetragonal enclosures of stonework, its wonder of tortuous alleyways and labyrinth of shallow canals, grim masses of stonework peering out from behind verdant screens, cyclopean barricades, and of how, when he had turned into its ghostly shadows, straightway the merriment of guides was hushed and conversation died down to whispers. He was silent for a little time. "'Of course, I wanted to pitch our camp there,' he went on again quietly. "'But I soon gave up that idea. The natives were panic-stricken, threatened to turn back.' No, they said, too great Ani there. We go to any other place, but not there. We finally picked for our base the islet called Ushentau. It was close to the Isle of Desire, but far enough away from it to satisfy our men. There was an excellent camping place and a spring of fresh water. We pitched our tents, and in a couple of days the work was in full swing. End of chapter 2